Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about adoption and foster care. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. Please let your friends know about this podcast. Most people find out about podcasting in general and, and specific podcasts through their friends. So when you find somebody who likes podcasts and who is interested in the areas of adoption, foster care, or kinship care, say something to them. Say, hey, I know a great podcast for you to listen to. Whip out your phone and show it to them. Uh, it helps us. Uh, we're the number one ranked podcast in this area, and we would like to maintain that ranking. So do us a favor and let people know about us. Thanks. Today, we're going to be talking about what's happening with adult international adoptees and the citizenship crisis. We will be talking primarily with Joy Alessa. She, Alessi. She is the director of the Adoptee Rights Campaign but we will also be talking with three adult international adoptees that are facing their own uh, citizenship crisis. And we'll be talking with them to have a better understanding of how they got into this mess and uh, how it's impacting them and why the rest of us should care. So first of all, I'll start with you, Joy. Welcome to Creating a Family. I uh, am so thankful that you are here to help us learn more about this because we all should care. Thank you so much for having us, Don. We really appreciate the platform to be able to tell our stories. Yeah, and you're, it's a great platform because a lot of our audience are parents, adoptive parents uh, or foster parents. And anyone whose lives have been touched by adoption should be in an outrage uh, about what is happening. And we all need to get on board. So I'll get, off, I'll get back on my soapbox later. But for now, <laughs> I'm going to share my soapbox with you, Joy. Um, what, do, sure. uh, what do we mean uh, by adoptees without citizenship? Uh, how can you not have citizenship? Right. So um, that's a great question to, to begin with. Uh, what we're referring to are those adoptees uh, who were uh, born outside of the country. So we usually refer to ourselves as inter-country adoptees. And uh, typically, uh, we are adoptees um, who did not receive citizenship when we were children by our parents uh, for some reason uh, and have aged into adulthood without citizenship. There are some minors who are vulnerable as well, uh, but it is our hope that uh, that with uh, shows like this, the information will get out and they will uh, uh, go through the naturalization process. Right. We should give a little bit of history now just for people who don't know. In 2000, an act was passed. Um, do you remember the name of the act, Joy, off the top of your head? Yes, it was the Child Citizenship Act. Yeah, yeah, the Child Citizenship Act was passed in 2000. And, and to be overly simplistic, basically what it meant was after that date or after it was enacted, the uh, children who were, they have to meet certain criteria, have to be under 18, a parent, one of their adoptive parents has to be a U.S. citizen, and uh, there's probably one or two other things, but it, they, and that when they arrive on U.S. soil from their parents having picked them up for adoption, they have citizenship automatically granted to them. So the the majority, now there are some exceptions, but they're fairly small. Um, if the adoption was not finalized prior to them arriving, then that would uh, 
that then they would have to then go through getting naturalized. But so the problem is primarily, as I understand it, with adoptees who were uh, before the year 2000. Am I correct, Joy? Yes, that is uh, correct. Mostly uh, this issue uh, applies to those who were born before 1983, which would mean that when the Child Citizenship Act was enacted, if you were had not reached the age of 18, you automatically became a citizen. Unfortunately, if you were 18 or older, you could not automatically receive citizenship. Right. So what was supposed to happen was when uh, a family adopted a child prior to the year 2000, and they brought them to the United States, they were supposed to naturalize, go through the process of naturalizing their child post-arrival. Um, I don't know percentages. I would say the majority of parents did do that, but clearly there are a number of parents who did not. And I'm not sure if that's how all this, how all of the people got into this situation, but nonetheless. Okay. Um, so how did it, it, was it always the case that parents did not go through the naturalization process? No, in fact, you are correct. By and large, this did occur. So adoption agencies uh, have increased um, or did increase over the years their ability to, uh, you know, make the information available. But unfortunately, uh, you know, without uh, federal oversight, uh, this is the immigration portion uh, was not always uh, completed. Right. And, you know, and, and it wasn't necessarily intentional in the sense, I think sometimes people just put it off, procrastinated and forgot about it. Or it seemed like a huge, it's expensive now. It didn't used to be terribly expensive, but I mean, they've spent a lot of money and just didn't think for whatever reason, probably more inadvertent than, than intentional. Although then there were other stories where the families were really struggling post-adoption um, and they didn't feel like, you know, dealing with more paperwork, that type of thing. So uh, there are any number of reasons. All right. So um, what type of adoption does, is most vulnerable to immigration type problems? Well, we're overrepresented in, in terms of um, the adult population. Uh, and that simply has to do with the, you know, historical um, uh, protocols um, for many, many years, the, as, as we said, the citizenship process or naturalization process was entirely separate. Uh, so as you said, uh, many uh, folks, you know, thought that they were finished uh, after their final, their final adoption in the United States. Um, and as we know, immigration was not as much of a concern uh, many, many decades ago, as it is now, uh, and also many states uh, were, uh, you know, sort of thinking that their um, adoption at, in the state court made them automatic citizens. Yes, that's a very good point. And I think if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, very often, um, I, I, the parents would choose to readopt uh, 
their child here in the U.S. Sometimes in certain countries, it was the first adoption because it was finalized here, but uh, parents would choose to readopt even if the adoption had been finalized elsewhere and assume that by the, because their child was adopted here in the U.S., that that would bestow citizenship, and it does not. Correct. Right. Okay. So, and it still does not, actually. No, it doesn't. It, uh, it right. still does so it not. Really, right. At this point, it really depends on which country the child would be coming from and whether or not that country is a member of the Hague Convention. Mm -hmm. And whether the adoption is finalized abroad. Yes. Okay, anything else, Joy, on the kind of the history of how we've got to this place? Uh, well, I mean, I think we've done a good job of explaining in a very basic way. Uh, I would just add that uh, the unfortunate part about the history of this issue is that it just drug on for so long. So if uh, commercialized adoption began, let's say in the early 1950s, it really wasn't until 2000 uh, when, or 2001 really, when the Child Citizenship Act became law. And so, you know, what is that? That's almost uh, half a century where we have had two separate um, structures, a state structure and a federal structure and uh, not a lot of attention to the policy gap. It's a well, long time. Yeah, a very long time. And you may not know the answer to this, but why when the Child Citizenship Act was passed, didn't it become retroactive for all ad adult adoptees? Why the age 18 cut off? And it, do you know the answer to that? I don't. Sure. Well, I can give you the, the answer that as it's been explained to me by many different opinions, but I think ultimately the idea was that there was a legislative compromise. As we know, uh, when you can start out with a bill, you can introduce a wonderful bill. Um, some folks refer to this as a clean bill, but as we understand, the legislative process doesn't exactly work that way, and there was a compromise. I think that the date, 1983, really just represents uh, you know, the, those that were minors. So the target uh, beneficiary uh, group of the child citizenship were, were minors. And so on the day of enactment, anyone who had not reached the age of 18, which would have dated back to about 1983, those are the, that's where that benefit, or I'm sorry, that's where that date came from. Okay. So arbitrary, basically. Does that make sense? It does. It's, it's well, arbitrary. It, it, and well, we <laughs> thank you for saying that. We do feel feel like it's arbitrary, although it, it really was focused at uh, adoptees who were minors, because then, of course, once you start talking about providing uh, automatic citizenship to adults, you have a, you know different uh, considerations to make, and I think that this bill. Um, during the legislative process, you know, had decided that they didn't really want to go into mm -hmm. those other considerations. Yeah, okay. All right, now I want to bring in the stories of uh, three adult adoptee, intercountry adoptees, who are without citizenship, and I want to understand how it happened and how, how it impacts you. Let's start with Mike. Uh, hey, Mike, thanks for being with us. Uh, 
where were you adopted from? What country? Um, thank you for having me. Uh, I was adopted from Colombia uh, in 1978. Uh, also, yeah, early 78, brought to America at that time. How old were parents, How old were you at adoption? Two. Okay. So you were uh, adopted and brought to the U.S. Okay. And um, how does it happen that you have never gotten citizenship? Well, apparently when my parents brought me in on a, a IR4 visa, um, they did not finish the adoption in the state of Illinois when they brought me back to America. They filed all the paperwork in Columbia, did what they needed to do, thought they were done, brought me back to America, and it turned out that they didn't do follow-ups um, with immigration or renew my green card at the time, which I did have. Um, I don't know if it's because of lack of knowledge or what the issue was, because again, I was two, <laughs> so I don't know. Um, but I... I found out because I was trying to apply for uh, school to better myself at my job, which I do where I'm a welder, and uh, and that unraveled a lot of a lot of things that I did not know. So how? Okay, so um, you you grew up just assuming you were a U.S. citizen and you lived here. You had no reason to think otherwise. You got a driver's license. Did you have a Social Security card? Yes. Okay. Um, I had a social security card. They changed my name. I lived a happy American life, um, mid Midwest town, you know, and moved to Florida. I had a steady job, so I had a government job. Um, I had no issues. Uh, renewed my driver's license, marked, you know, did did, did things I, I I did as a citizen. So that's what I thought it was. Yeah, I had no reason to know. So then you applied to some type of training program. And apparently yeah. you had to uh, show proof of citizenship as part of that process? Uh, that's correct. I had to show yeah, proof of identity, I, I guess, is what they were looking for. And I gave them the paperwork I've had my whole life. Uh, it was all in Spanish. So assuming, you know, Social Security took that paperwork. So I assumed a technical school would take that paperwork without an issue. Okay. And it became an issue. So... Following the trail, you know, walking back my steps to find out what the heck happened, um, it turns out that my parents did not uh, do do that, like I said, follow up with immigration. Um, nobody knows how the Social Security card was obtained without the proper documentation. And there was no documentation of my name change from my birth name to my adopted name. Um, that be presented quite a problem, uh, and then it's a big shock when you're 41 years old and you find this out. You know, yeah. it's like everything's gone. You know, your your identity, who you are, what you grew up believing, and your you know, it's just gone, and it, it changed it changed everything. Oh, I, yeah, I, I can't imagine. Actually, were your parents still alive at that time? When I found out my dad had passed, so my mom was still alive, um, she didn't have answers. You know, she, she's 86 years old, you know, and mine's not as sharp as it was. And trying to get her to remember 
and, and find out what was going on was hard. Uh, I ended up doing a lot of the stuff myself, uh, along with the help of my wife. And we could not find paper trails for anything. And, you know, it became an issue to where I ended up having to hire an immigration lawyer. So, and then that didn't go very well the first one. I have, I have on my second one. So how does it impact you not being a citizen? Were you able to ever get into that school? No, not only was I not able to get in that school, I had to give up all the rights as an American citizen that I thought I had. Voting, um, any, anything that you can be proud of as a citizen here in this country, I had to give it up. And then that turned to fear of ending up in a country I didn't know because at the time I, did, I didn't know my situation. And with uh, you know everything going on, um, it was rough. And, you know, depression, the depression set in. And I had no idea what was going on. Um, so it, it, it changed a lot, a lot of things. And I, and I felt abandoned, if that's the correct word to use. By whom? Uh, I felt abandoned by maybe my adopted parents mm -hmm. not doing it correctly or following up um, by the government who says they stand by you and will protect you as a citizen and to turn around and, and, and do a 180 to make you feel like you're not. Uh, and the, the second guest looks you get when you go into an immigration office now, you know, it, it, it's, it's just sad to me. Now, that being said, as far as my adopted parents go, I passed the being felt like that anymore. There's nothing they can do anymore. Now, it's, I need to finish whatever I need to do to take care of this, even though I shouldn't have to, but it's out of their hands now. You know, my mom at 86 cannot do anything else for me. No. So I, um, I, I can't blame her anymore. I, I've gotten past that. You know, forgiveness, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I, there's other things like the government I cannot at the moment forgive because I, again, I shouldn't have to have jumped through hoops to get something that I thought was mine to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, let's bring Bianca in now. Bianca, uh, where were where were you adopted from? And uh, share us the experience as to how you've ended up without uh, citizenship. Thank you for having me as well. Um, so I was adopted from what is now North Macedonia. Um, at the time of my adoption, it was still SFR Yugoslavia. Um, so I was adopted when I believed I was about two or three. Um, no one really told me much about it at all. Um, everything kind of seemed to run smoothly. The only thing I remember is being in the USA with my adoptive parents, um, who were also from the same background. Um, all my life, they told me, well, when I was younger, they told me I was adopted about four years old. Um, and as time went by, they always told me, you know, don't bring your permanent resident card. Don't bring your birth certificate. Don't show anybody any of that. Just your passport. You know, you're, you're a citizen through us. 
Um, so I just wait, Bianca, wait, stop a second. Let me ask you a question. Your parents were from uh, what was then Yugoslavia as well, but they were yeah. U.S. citizens. How did you get a? Yeah, they have, how did you get a U.S. They immigrated before. Sorry. They immigrated before, so they came from Yugoslavia to the U.S. and and were and were naturalized and, and were U.S. citizens. They adopted yeah. you from what was then Yugoslavia. How did you get? Did you meet? Did you say that you had a U.S. passport? Um, so I do. Um, they. I'm not exactly sure how they got it. They both actually passed away. Um, anybody still living? I'm no. I'm not in contact with them. Um, and I don't really know how to go about finding contact as of now. Um, <clears throat> so what 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 I'm starting to understand is that my adoption was done in Yugoslavia. Um, I went to the embassy and was kind of like pushed through essentially. Um, excuse the lack of details. It's just uh, what I was able to put together. Yeah, I was gonna say you so don't have the details. Arrival, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Upon arrival, I guess, is when they gave me the permanent resident card and a social security number. Um, so on some of my paperwork, it says that my parents were to finalize the adoption in the USA under an IR4 visa. And then other things, like I have one receipt for an IR3. So I'm not really sure exactly what I came in on. Um, I do know that I spoke to another woman that adopted a, a girl from over there as well. And she said that they were supposed to finalize the adoption in the United States, although nobody did. So there was never anything done in New York. There's nothing on record that I was adopted or anything like that. But somehow I they were able to take your permanent residency card and get you a U.S. passport. That's interesting. It, yeah. It was it it is actually pretty interesting. From what I'm understanding, they're able to apply for the passport and then I guess it was the honor system, I'm not really too sure. Um upon applying for the social security card, um, when they receive one back, they're supposed to go to the court with that social security card and say, Hey, this is my child, let's finalize this. Um, although I did find after I actually had to um get a lawyer too and thank God for adopted rights campaign um so i'm now working with a lawyer who's finally able to get a foia for me um so i do see that there was adoption papers although not really too sure if they qualify or what exactly what exactly the issue is um so i mean that and that's really all that there is there's that in their applications for uh, immediate classification of an orphan to be an immediate relative. Uh -huh. Nothing really makes sense. There's like different birthdays, different names, and it's a mess. So how has it, you actually had a passport, uh, and again, you had a social security card. So how has not being a citizen impacted you? So I actually had a driver's license. I had a social security card. I had a passport. Um, and now my driving privileges were all, like suddenly revoked in a, in a way, I guess. I went to DMV and um, they, they said that my name was red flags in their system for discrepancies in my information. Um, and they asked me for my permanent resident card, which has a, birth, a different birthday than my passport um, and my birth certificate. And upon seeing the birth certificate, the guy behind the counter said the birth certificate wasn't real. 
Uh, it's the first time I'd ever heard anything about it. Um, turns out it wasn't. It's an extract copy of what would be a birth certificate. Uh, I was never given an actual real birth certificate. And um, so I wasn't able to drive anymore. Um, I went to Social Security. They attempted to confiscate my passport until a supervisor came out and was able to remove my middle name um, using some bylaws and whatnot uh, so I could keep that. Um, and the passport I was given under special circumstance when my adoptive mother was in hospice. So I kind of just got lucky. Whoever was there was there. Um, it impacts me daily not being able to drive, mostly because I have four children, um, which yeah. the small I have a small child, three years old, and I have three, uh, 12, 13, and 14-year-olds. So um, they do a lot of activities, a lot of sports. So it's either I have two choices, either I drive illegally or I don't drive and I can't go to anything. Um, no cars can be in my name. I had to immediately, like in order to avoid, you know, getting the car taken or anything, put it under somebody else's name, try and like finagle this and that to even own a vehicle. Um, they actually, I asked them and, you know, my daughter said, as much as she says she doesn't want me to come to game, that she gets sad every time she looks up and I can't make one. Um, and that it's embarrassing to tell her friends, no, my mom can't give you a ride. She doesn't have a license. She might not be a citizen, you know, because um, it was shocking for them, too. Sure. So it's kind of like they and I'm I'm the only living relative that they have. My both my adoptive parents passed away. They're not in contact with their biological father's side. Um, so it makes it really difficult for them. You know, the worry about what if something were to happen. Um, and then having to just be teenagers and then the toddler she doesn't know anything about it you know she's just kind of like happy go lucky but you know i don't know hopefully she doesn't have to be affected by it um but even rides in the morning if they miss the bus i have to pay for ubers and cabs it's it's exhausting it drains the money um and then not having id like everything i do for them i have to have identification and if i if one thing doesn't suffice then the other doesn't even match to be able to make it happen. And how so there's old, a lot of opportunities that they miss out on. Yeah, I can see that. How how old were you when you became aware that this was a problem? Because up to a certain point, you probably didn't even know this was an issue. Yeah, I had absolutely no clue. Um, about ten years ago, um, roughly, an ICE investigation was open and. Um, called my mom, my adoptive mother, of course, and uh, I didn't have contact with my biological family. So um, called my adoptive mother, told her what was going on. She got furious and um, told, that, told me to tell them that if they came to see me again, to call her, and that I'm a citizen through her. Apparently, you know, they came back a couple of times. They threatened to deport me and had paperwork, and um, she spoke to them. She had some type of meeting. And everything was kind of like null and void. She squashed it all. But I never got any of the paperwork. ICE never gave it to me, and um, she never gave it to me. So I, I didn't ask any questions. I just trusted her. But then after she passed, that's when I went to the DMV after the whole passport thing. Um, my adoptive father actually passed away when I was 17, and I was due to receive Social Security benefits through his union job. Mm -hmm. um, my adoptive mother never told me that I didn't receive them 
because she couldn't prove citizenship. Um, I actually found that paper after she passed away from the Social Security Department for refusal of benefits because I wasn't a citizen. Oh. And that's when I kind of like uprooted all of my paperwork and documents and got going on the search. Okay. All right. And then let's bring our last adult adoptee in, Leah. Um, let's tell, please tell us your story. Where were you adopted from? Okay. Hi, Don. Thanks for having us. Um, I was born in South Korea and I was, um, I came to the United States in 1983. My adoption was finalized about a year later in 1984. And I grew up in Nebraska. Um, I do have a social security card. I have a birth certificate from the state of Nebraska uh, with a seal. But my adopted parents, they they got divorced. I mean, looking back at the dates when I kind of realized and put everything together, they were really getting a divorce at the same time that my adoption was being finalized. Um, oh. And so the paperwork was just maybe misplaced. Um, each person said they didn't have the right documents. And so really the divorce is kind of what uh, created uh, created the problem with my naturalization not occurring. How old were you at adoption? I was about a year and a half old. Okay, and and did they both each think the other person was doing it, or it just got swept under the the general chaos that adop- that that divorce w- had brought? Yeah, I'm not sure at the time. I think that it just wasn't a priority, and I didn't know um, that it was an issue as a child. I think that I found out that I was not a citizen when I was a teenager. Um, my my high school a class was taking a trip to Europe, and my mom just kind of like, well, you don't need to go to Europe. That's a waste of money. <laughs> um, but really, it was she knew that I wouldn't be able to get a passport to travel. Um, but like I said, because I did have all of the other documents, like I got my driver's license in Nebraska, and I had my social security card. I went to college, and I have federal student loans. When I would complete the application, I would just mark I was a permanent resident, and I would put my my A number from my green card, and I never had a problem getting loans. And um, when I was 20, I joined the Navy as a reservist, and I had no problem joining the military either. Oh. So they didn't mind having you serve in the military or they didn't mind having you owe the money, but then, but they, okay. All right. Right. I think a lot of people think that you have to be a citizen to serve the country. Um, but that's definitely not true. So you were in the Navy at this point, you knew that you did not, you were not a citizen. Correct. Um, actually there were certain jobs then that were closed off to me because I was not a citizen, so I had, you know, other jobs that I could choose from. Okay. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that earlier you guys talked about 1983 and 2001 being the date that the Child Citizenship Act was passed, because mm-hmm. I was born in 1982, and had the law been passed sooner, I would have been grandfathered in, but I was, um, I had turned 18 six months prior to that law. So you just cut off. Right. All right. So how is it impacting you to not be a citizen now? Um, I think the last couple of years, I've really started connecting with other 
Korean adoptees, and a lot of us as adults now are um, starting birth searches or birth family searches, um, traveling back to Korea, kind of reconnecting with our culture there and finding family members. And I never even considered that. Um, but I think now the reason I didn't think about it is because I knew it wasn't a possibility. Like, why would I search for birth family when I can't travel to go visit them and meet them? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that makes me a little sad, like, that I, I have this country that, that I can't even go visit or see. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then talking about, like, working with government agencies, I got pretty lucky in my last two full-time jobs where I was able to go through the process with my birth certificate from Nebraska and my social security card. Um, and I have my adoption paperwork from Nebraska that shows my name change from my Korean name to my American name. But I did recently start working uh, a part-time seasonal job before the holidays. And like their list was exactly the same as the other companies I've worked for. You need something from column A, which is usually a passport, or something from B and C. So I thought, okay, I had recently lost my social security card. So I was like, okay, well, I have my driver's license, which is B, and I have my birth certificate from Nebraska, which is C. Like, it clearly stated on there a birth certificate from a state with a seal. But because my birth certificate said I wasn't born in the United States, then they came back and asked me for more information, which had never happened before. Um, so I had a couple trips to the Social Security office, and they – I don't quite understand how – they can give a social security number to a non-citizen, but they couldn't give me a replacement card. They said that because in the system I was marked as a non-citizen, I couldn't get a second blue piece of paper. Like, the number didn't change. I just couldn't get a replacement card. So that was very frustrating. And they, they could they knew, they could tell in the system that you had had a card. Yes. They said I had only been issued one card ever. It was in 1988 when my mom got my first one and I'd never lost it. So I'd never ordered a replacement. Yeah. Um, so my social security right. number is valid. Like I use it on my tax returns and for employment, but they just couldn't give me another blue piece of paper with the number printed on it. I thought it was crazy. Yeah, that does. Uh, that does seem crazy. All right. Let me, <laughs> let me ask each of you, do, uh, do you guys fear being deported? Um, do you fear being forced to leave this country? Let me start with you, uh, Bianca. Yes, I do. Um, I fear that I fear that I will be deported, but my biggest fear is sitting in detention because I don't have a country. And then what are my children going to do? They have no one. Because Yugoslavia no longer exists and and you really have exactly. no necessary, you, you don't have any paperwork that connects you to Macedonia because Macedonia didn't exist. Okay. No, actually, I had to relinquish my, my citizenship from Yugoslavia two years after leaving the country. So there's like no record of anything. So my biggest worry is really like, what in the world are these kids going to do if I wasn't here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you get deported or are stuck in, as you say, detention. Mike, do you exactly. worry about being deported? Um, I used to, not as much now, unless everybody that's been telling me that I should be fine is not real, is not truthful. So, um, 
based on everything, I, I don't have that fear as much. But uh, like I said, again, uh, I'm hoping that I, I, there's no there's no issue. Yeah, I hope so too. Uh, Leah, what about you? Is that a fear that you have? Oh, it definitely is. Um, you know, I feel like I'm a pretty lawful non-citizen, I guess you'd say. Um, <laughs> but, but you hear the stories, like adoptees are deported, military veterans are deported. And um, for me, I think, you know, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, like maybe being with somebody when they're committing a crime that you're unaware of, there's just so many ways that they could pick you up and, and open up an investigation and put the current administration and politics the way they are you know, you just, you just never know. So that, that fear is always there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, one of the, I think, Joy, I don't know that you, uh, I'd like to bring you back in. I do believe that there's a myth out there that you don't need to worry about this. Okay. Yeah. Maybe they should have had the citizenship, but it's not, as long as they're law abiding, as Leah said, non-citizens, as long as, as as they obey the law, they don't have anything to worry about. And that just gets my dander up. Uh, first of all, we can see from talking with Mike, Bianca, and Leah that the ramifications are are far more significant than just of non-citizenship than just fear of deportation. But even the deportation, and even even if somebody has broken the law, what happened to punishment fit the crime? You don't throw somebody out of this country for a, you know, a, 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 for that's not the, the punishment. Uh, we have other forms of depending on what their crime is. There are other things they do that, that and you don't throw somebody out of the country, particularly somebody who's who this is their home. And it just drives me nuts when I hear people say that, well, what, what do you, why are we worried? Because as long as they obey the law, they don't have anything to worry about. That just simply isn't true. And even if they didn't obey the law, they don't deserve to be thrown out of the country. Um, all right, uh, Joy, thoughts on that. Do you also see that there is a misunderstanding as to the impact of this versus that, 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 that only those people who break the law need to worry about it? Do you also see that as an issue? Yes. So first of all, I should say that there's obviously quite a lot of misunderstanding. One of the uh, most common misunderstandings uh, is that we are somehow, we were adopted as adults and that somehow, you know, this was a, you know, a sort of sidestep or um, circumventing the system in order to get citizenship. So yeah. just like to remind uh, folks that we are talking about uh, the fact that we were adopted as children, infants, children, and so on. Yes. Um, so there's that. But, um, you know, deportation is severe. That is true. Um, it is severe. Uh, it, we don't believe that it fits the crime, obviously, had it not been for these filing errors and so forth. Any one of the adoptees who uh, is pushed out of the country uh, would have been treated as they should have been, which would be as an American. And we do believe that if, obviously, if you um, have sort of some sort of um, issue, a criminal um, action, we do believe that, uh, you know, the you should pay the penalty. But as you have said, we don't throw people out of the country mm -hmm. uh, for such things. Um, and I would say that also, uh, as far as we understand, any adoptee who has been deported 
um, has served their time. Mm-hmm. So exactly. it's not that they are just it's not yeah. that they are just discovered to have committed a crime and then all of a sudden kicked out of the country. They have served their time, and I would just I say that same here. And 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 the right. other thing is keep in mind, it's not like it is through no fault of any of these adopt adult adoptees, including the three we have here. It is through no fault of their own. They did nothing wrong. That well, in this case, everybody the oldest person was two or three. I mean, they they uh, it is through mistakes, innocent or not, that their parents made. Um, and that is, and so we don't punish children for the mistakes of their parents. Well, I would add to that that there were a lot of uh, errors made by the government as well. So anything from missing immigration files uh, to you know mismanagement and poor information, both from uh, lawyers, um, you know our legal community. That's you know that would be adoption lawyers, adoption courts. Um, and then, of course, to the federal government as well. So, you know, as I myself went through this process um, just a couple of years ago, when I began to pursue citizenship for myself, I, I was still very, uh, mis- very, very misinformed. And I wanted to answer your question um, to the other uh, adoptees, Mike, Leah, and Bianca, for myself. I did fear deportation for 25 years. Uh, I found out um, I was not a citizen at about age 25, and at that time I divulged that I had um, voted. I was in complete shock, and I not only feared deportation, but I feared prosecution. Uh, I was told that I would be prosecuted, uh, held, and deported. I think a couple of years ago there was a case in Texas. It was not an adoptee, but it was a green card holder who had uh, voted um, as a non-citizen, and she was prosecuted. Uh, She's serving eight years before she will be deported. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So this is something that just, the the fear is, you know, in in terms of answering your question about um, the extremes, um, whether you are outside of the country, forced outside of the country, or you are trapped inside a country without a state, without a nation, without a nationality. Mm-hmm. I think either way, it's incredibly different or difficult to, to function, and especially now as we um, become a nation that is so tied to um, or that has tied just the basic right to citizenship or to where you were born, to your birthplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Let me yeah, pause. This is Mike. May, may I expand on something? Yes, please, Mike. Uh, I want to expand on the fear. Uh, we talk about fear of deportation, but there's also fear that we have as immigrants in this country. It's more of where you are, where you live. The fear, the hatred that's been um, in this country lately towards immigrants. And that is a huge fear. I mean, yes, deportation is a fear, but now you're, when you're here, you have to deal with that on top of that fear of deportation too. So there's a lot of it and it's a lot of people who do not know what's really going on and they they don't have the knowledge. So they have the they have the fear that we're all, you know, terrible people and we're not. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. to be honest, if I can just piggyback off of what Mike said, definitely, definitely, you know, fear of judgment, um, especially with the kids, like going to the school, um, them saying things to certain friends, like they have to pick and choose who they talk to. Um, and it puts like a big limitation, like when certain people I'm talking to, like, let's say the principal about something or, you know, anything that would involve it being necessary to say so, um, certain volunteer events, like I can't volunteer at the voting booth and all that stuff. Like I've actually never voted. My adoptive parents told me never to vote. I didn't really understand the connection. I just thought it was because of them. They never voted. Um, so it's definitely, there's a huge judgment by it, especially in, um, the community with the kids as a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I can absolutely. And then it's fear of who's going to say something and why. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I, I can only imagine as a parent not wanting your children to feel shame, so not wanting to make it secret. But on the other hand, also- Oh, yeah, it's a huge, huge battle. It's like, do I tell them not to say anything and, like, keep a secret? Or do I tell them not to, you know? So I kind of tell them to use their own discretion. And not everybody out there can be trusted with your intimate information. So you have your inner circle, your medium circle, and your large circle kind of thing. Yeah, that's a good that's way. That's what you really come up with. <laughs> no, that's a good way to put it, actually. Let me pause briefly to remind everyone that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Being Family Foundation. The Jockey Being Family is committed to providing support to families nationwide, nationwide, I'm sorry, to help them be forever families um, and um, and to support them for the lifelong journey that is adoption. Um, so if you would like to support them, um, they support organizations like us. So please visit their website, jockeybeingfamily.com to see how you can support them and can impact families, post-adoptive families nationwide. All right. So Joy, um, so we know that there is the problem here. So I know that there is legislation that uh, could solve this problem um, that has been proposed. What is the legislation and what is the status? So thank you for asking about that. Yes, uh, in uh, last year, 2019, uh, Congress reintroduced the Adoptee Citizenship Act. That's H.R. 2713. Sorry, I don't have it right in front of me. I usually just refer to it as the Adoptee Citizenship Act. I'm sorry, it, it is HR in the House. It is HR 2731. And there is also a Senate companion bill. Uh, currently, uh, the bill is gaining momentum in the House of Representatives. Uh, we are, rec we've recently started to see additional uh, Senate members uh, uh, join on. Uh, the bills, by and large, are bipartisan, so we're, you know, obviously very fortunate to see uh, that both, um, you know, both Republicans and Democrats uh, are supporting this issue. This is really, um, as they should, this is a intercountry adoption is a foreign policy. It is a, um, you know, it has been for um, many, many years, and this is really a, a, about a family program and, um, you know, upholding, um, you know, the importance of the intercountry adoption um, policy in this country it is extremely important. Uh, this bill will will help uh, uh, the institution of adoption. 
Absolutely. And it's also putting our money where our mouth is. We say that adopted children have the rights of and become full members of their and should become full members, both emotionally and, and legally in every other way of their adopted families. Well, that's easy to say, but if you're not going to give them citizenship um, or make it easy for them to get citizenship, uh, then you're then you're not uh, you're not backing up your words. I agree with that, and thank you for saying that. I still think that it's very interesting and quite perplexing that there is not a legal mandate that uh, adoptive parents bestow citizenship to their children. Yeah. So, um, despite the progress that we have, despite the Child Citizenship Act and the automatic uh, citizenship that came along with certain classes of adoptions, we still have. Uh, intercountry adoptees coming into the United States from countries who uh, don't fall under that uh, automatic umbrella and uh, therefore are still vulnerable. So uh, we we urge adoptive parents to make certain that um, they've taken the correct measures um, during their adoption process and to be certain that naturalization is complete before the child's 18th birthday. Right. Okay. So let's talk about this. So thank you for, um, this is a good way for us to sum up. First of all, what should parents do who have adopted internationally to make certain that their children will not fall into this category and will not have some of the problems uh, that that all of you guys are facing right now. Um, do they need to uh, they need to have citizenship their their child's citizenship papers? What all what do you recommend that they do? Well, thank you. I first of all, I I think that we've got two general classifications of adoptions that are occurring. We have adoptions that go through agencies, and we usually refer to those as commercial adoptions. And at this point, I, I would hope that most adoption service providers are on board, they understand, and they are informing their clients, and, uh, prospective adoptive parents, and that they're sticking with them throughout the process to follow up and make sure that all of these uh, protocols are followed. Uh, in terms of the other category, which is really where Adoptee Rights Campaign has focused, uh, is it's the private adoption. So it's the, you know, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so from Arkansas who decide to go to, um, you know, some other country uh, and pick out a child and adopt them there and come back and maybe they've um, applied for, the, you know, a, a non-immigrant visa and, and maybe they've not had any legal uh, uh, sort of advice. Um, so these are things that uh, we are very concerned about. And uh, I, we are also concerned that uh, these, these prospective parents or these adoptive parents are um, coming into the country without proper vetting. In, in, in the example where they would come, they would, they would adopt a child maybe um, from Peru. There was a child adopted a couple of years ago in Peru um, that the parents uh, came back into the country. They applied for a, just a non-immigrant visa, you know, a visitor visa, thinking that they would come back into the United States and uh, confirm the uh, naturalization. But uh, that's really where they've uh, made an error. And also it's an error on, on the part of the embassies that are uh, not overseeing um, those cases. So in the case of the Peruvian child, 
uh, it was too late by the time uh, they realized it. And ultimately, uh, the uh, immigration issued deportation orders on the child. So it's, it's incredibly important that parents understand um, they can reach out to the State Department, they can reach out to, um, you know, an immigration or an adoption lawyer to make certain that they are following each and every protocol that they need to uh, before they come into the United States. Right. I don't think it's happening too much anymore because the State Department has issued rules that say that even in non-Hague countries, uh, you still have to use, uh, you still have to work. So I think it's happening much less now, but nonetheless, so, all right, so that's, that's the younger, younger folk. So what is happening? Uh, that's what parents should be doing. So what do you need? But that doesn't help um, uh, Mike, Bianca, and Leah and the others in their boat. Um, that's not helpful for them. That does, it is important for those of us who have children that are younger, but that doesn't help, <laughs> doesn't help the rest of you guys. So what do you need? Uh, that, but the uh, Adoptee Citizenship Act would help them. So what do you need people to do to help get this act passed? Thank you so much for asking that. So we would ask uh, you know, people to reach out to their members of Congress and ask them and urge them, actually, to sponsor uh, the Adoptee Citizenship Act. Uh, as we know, that's one of the things. So you want what you're asking is, Get your your uh, your house, your representative, and your senators to, to that sign is on correct. as sponsors of the bill. Gotcha. Okay. Yes, and I would say be persistent with it because one ask is not enough. Be persistent until your member has done so. All right. Great. Okay. So what we need is more sponsors for the bill, uh, and that can be either your uh, both the House bill and the Senate bill. Uh, what else do you need? Correct. Well, you know, have, continue to have discussions with your neighbors, your, your church, uh, fellow church members, your, you know, your peers, uh, your, your, your coworkers, um, and forums like this. This is so important, and that's why we're so thankful for uh, this opportunity um, that you've given us. It's important that folks get involved. They can also reach out to us. We are um, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can also look us up at Adoptee Rights Campaign if you'd like to get involved with our campaign. We can certainly um, uh, use the help there. Uh, and also, we do have. You could also donate. We they could donate because you could use the money because this campaign <laughs> is not cheap. You've got to, you know, you've got to. All of you are doing this, you know, in addition to holding down other work and stuff like that. So anyway, that's another thought. Adoptee Rights Campaign. You could get. Do you have a website? Yes, you can find us at adoptyrightscampaign.org. And just to clarify, our uh, fiscal sponsor uh, goes by the name of World Hug Foundation. But you can find the link to donate on our website, Adoptee Rights Campaign. Gotcha. And you can also look up, do you go by ARC, our Adoptee Right Campaign, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? Adoptee Rights Campaign. Okay, so you can uh, follow them. So not only donate, but also follow them so that they, the more followers they get, the better able they are and they, to get their message out and the better able you are to help them get their message out because you can retweet, share, whatever, some of their posts. Okay, and so. Wait, and could I just, could I also just say for, 
for those who may be listening, who may not be certain of their status, if you're an adoptee and you're not quite certain about your status, or if you are sure that you do not have citizenship, you can always reach out to us at adoptyourrightscampaign.org. Uh, my email address is on our website. You can come through, you can message us through uh, any of the social media forums. We are here uh, in, and we are, um, we secure your information. So if you are an impacted person and you're, um, you know, concerned about your security, um, we, we can definitely um, help you uh, with uh, kind of overlooking your situation and, and uh, we will try our best to provide um, insights and guidance. We're not lawyers, uh, but uh, we definitely um, have some experience in this way. Excellent. And I'm really glad you pointed that out because some of the people listening, um, either on their own or a parent of somebody listening will be concerned thinking, oh my gosh, <laughs> does that apply to me? Let me pause and remind everyone that this show is brought to you by the support not only of our underwriter, but also our partners. And these are agencies that believe in our mission of providing training and support to families pre-adoption and pre-fostering, as well as continuing to support them through the lifetime of their family uh, post-adoption and post-fostering. One such agency is Children's Connection. They're an adoption agency providing services for domestic infant adoption and embryo donation and adoptions throughout the U.S., as well as home studies and post-adoption support. We also have Spence Chapin. They are a licensed, accredited nonprofit organization in the New York, New York City metro area that has been offering adoption services for more than 100 years. They are known for their robust post-adoption services, which provide birth parents, adoptive parents, and adoptees a supportive community and a connection to professionals who understand the unique aspects of being adopted. Uh, Joy, Mike, Bianca, and Leah, thank you so much for being with us today to, to bring light to this, to this situation. We will continue at Creating a Family to uh, retweet, share, do whatever we can uh, to raise awareness of this issue. Uh, we have our marching call here. We need to go out and uh, get our members to co-sponsor co the bill, get our uh, con congressional representatives to co-sponsor the bill. We need to donate to your campaign, and we need to follow you on uh, social media. And, and once you follow, also uh, retweet, share, whatever, uh, so that we get this message out. I truly appreciate all that you guys are doing. And, and, and for uh, Bianca, Mike, and Leah, I appreciate your willingness to come on and be vulnerable and share your stories. Um, human stories really do make a difference. And so thank you for all that you are. Thank you for, for your bravery. And thank you, Joy, for your un, unwavering support and, and huge dedication from a time standpoint for what you're doing. I really appreciate that too. All right, go forth. We will get that darn thing passed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Don. All right.